Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, welcome back to This One's a Doozy. I'm Kevin. And I'm Haley. And we talk about stories of mystery, true crime, and folklore of the unusual, unsettling, and oftentimes unsavory goings-on of our world today, yesterday, and long ago. Yes. Here we are. We're back. We are back. I feel like it's been kind of a long week because we didn't do uh, a Monday episode. I know. I've noticed that on the weeks that we don't do two episodes, it feels like a really, really, really long time Isn't in between. Weird? Yeah, it's weird. And yet, but it's not that long. It just it feels really long. <laughs> yeah. yeah, maybe some of our listeners feel like it feels really long. That would, I've been told that. I I would believe it. I've been told that people get sad when they realize it's not Thursday and that we have not released a special Monday episode. <laughs> they have to wait a whole seven days. Well, I'm honored. Truly, really, I agree. Truly, I'm honored by that. Yeah, it means a lot. Well, um, we need to always ask. The all-important question. Mm. My love, what are you drinking? So, I'm shaking things up just a little bit. Mm. I got a Tiavana spiced apple cider tea. And it's like an herbal tea with like spices and apple and all of that in it. And I added just a little bit of caramel sauce to it. Mm. And a little whipped cream and some cinnamon sugar. Nice. Sounds really tasty. Really fancy. Yeah, that's great for when it's cold outside. It feels, yes, it feels like a good cold... We're getting a cold front in Nebraska this week, and it feels appropriate to enjoy such a beverage as this. Yes. What about you? What do you have? Well, uh, I'm continuing through Christmas drinks that I was given. Yes. And so uh, this time I've got another uh, beer from the Nebraska Brewing Company called Gimme S'more Vanilla Brown Ale. Wow. Which I just, I love a good vanilla I know you do. That's really special for me. So thank you, Nebraska Brewing Company, for having a s'mores drink because uh, that is just another notch on top of the vanilla drink. (laughs) So I'm excited about that. It really does. Do they have the nut-like one? It does not have a nut. Oh, that yeah. The other. Nebraska Brewing Company. Yes, that was Nebraska Brewing Company was the (laughs) nut-like banana beer. Yeah. And it was really good. But this one is a brown ale. With aromatic flavors of marshmallow, chocolate, and graham, derived Ooh. from malts and vanilla transport, and vanilla, which transport you in time to your last or future outdoor excursion. Whoa! I know, I know. They didn't even know that I needed that, but I did. Well, the s'more also feels like a cozy thing. Like it feels like nobody just eats a s'more when they're in a hurry, right? Like. You're taking life slow. 
you're enjoying the people that you're with or maybe some time alone around a fire. Yeah. You're lovingly piecing together this Mm -hmm. classic treat. That is very good. I just took my first drink of it. Wow. I am taking your word for it. I'm glad you like it. I know. To you, it would just taste like beer. Every time you're like, try this. It tastes like Fruity Pebbles. And it literally tastes like beer. My trust in you goes down just like a little bit. Like a little bit betrayed. Yeah. Well, (laughs) I do my best. (laughs) I wish I had the taste buds for it because there are so many interesting beers out there that I would love to enjoy, but I just don't like beer. You you just, yeah, it's fair. Sorry. Maybe someday you'll acquire the taste. As maybe you, I will. As you get older. I'm holding out hope that yeah. maybe someday. Maybe someday. Maybe I just haven't tried the right one. It's possible. Yeah. Sometimes it just takes the right drink and then you go, oh, wow, I like this beer. Yeah. <laughs> and that's how it starts. When I was like 21, 22, I would drink beer mm-hmm. just because it was there. Yeah. And I always hated it and I got sick every time. <laughs> like sicker than tequila sick. Yeah. You were just trying to impress me. That's what it really was. Yeah. That's definitely it. (laughs) All right. (laughs) We need to move on from this conversation. Okay. What, uh, what do you have for us this week by way of feel good fact? Okay. So Diego, a giant Galapagos tortoise is responsible for saving his species from extinction after fathering over 800 offspring. (laughs) A little over 50 years ago, when he was about 50 years old himself, Diego became part of a breeding program that paired him with the 12 remaining captive females of his species, and he did the dang thing. <laughs> he entered into retirement in 2020. Wow. Yeah. Well, and he's Good still kind him. of like a young man, too. He's just hanging out. Yeah. Enjoying the fruits of saving his species <laughs> or taking part in saving his species. Being being a real hero. Yeah. The hero we didn't know he needed. I know. Thanks, Diego. (laughs) That's a a great story. That one just made me smile and giggle and happy because I love reptiles so much. That's true. And to see a species get saved from the brink is Mm -hmm. like, that makes me feel great. Yeah. You are a huge reptile fan. That is something I don't know if we've ever talked about on the podcast, but. I don't think we have. You are not just a fan, but also very well educated on the subject. Oh my gosh. Thank you. I know. I know. Thanks. Thankful for Diego. Yes. Diego out there doing the Lord's work. Yeah. So. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, love, are you ready to share with us what you have for us this week? I am. Okay. So we are back with another true crime story. Right out of the gate, I'm going to offer a content warning for today's episode. Today's story features discussions of suicide as well as gruesome descriptions of murder and crime scenes. I don't think that I will need to make any last minute content warnings this time, but I wanted to make sure that I offered a general warning just to be safe. Hmm. Tuesday, December 27th, 2011 had gone on like most days for Russ Faria in his town of Troy, Missouri. He finished up his work for the day and left his home at 5 p.m. He then ran a few errands before he made his way over to game night, a weekly tradition that he shared with his friends on this particular night. Yeah. On this particular night, one of the regular guys who usually joined in wasn't able to make it. And as was the rule, if someone was missing, the remaining friends would still try and hang out, but they wouldn't play the game without everyone there. Hmm. So the group watched a few movies. They smoked a little weed and just hung out and caught up with each other. It's a real party. Real party. So earlier that day, Russ had been texting with his wife, Betsy, throughout the day. 
Betsy had reminded him to pick up some dog food for their chow golden retriever mix, Sicily, before coming home after game night. And they chatted about their plans for the day and all that kind of stuff. Hmm. Betsy had a chemotherapy appointment that day, and she kept him in the loop on how that went. Her friend Pam had offered to drive her home from her appointment so she could go home and rest. Normally, Russ would pick her up, but this time it was just a nice gesture Mm. from a friend. Mm -hmm. After game night was over, Russ grabbed himself some food and headed home, dropping the dog food off in the garage as he walked inside. When he walked into the home, he took off his Harley jacket and called out for his wife, but there was no response. Mm. As he was walking past the living room, open Christmas gifts still cluttering the floors, that's when he saw her. His wife, Betsy, laying on the floor in a pool of blood. He ran over to her and saw a deep wound to her wrist, several slash marks on other parts of her body, and the black handle of a steak knife sticking out of her neck. Oh. Oh no, Russ thought. She finally did it. She finally killed herself. It was the only explanation he could come up with in those initial moments of shock of seeing her. He quickly called police, who sent a team over to examine the crime scene, and this was only the beginning of a very dark, very bleak descent into discovering the truth of what had happened to Betsy Faria. Hang on, Kev. This one's a doozy. Wow. I'm I'm automatically hooked in and very curious. Yeah, it was kind of a long intro. It, I'm like, I'm just going to roll it was, with it. But it was, it's yes, that sets up a very vivid scene. Okay, so Elizabeth K. Meyer was born on March 24th, 1969 to her parents, Kenneth and Janet Meyer in Richmond Heights, Missouri. From a young age, she went by the nickname Betsy, Hmm. which I just think is so cute. I love that name. She also had three sisters, Mary, Julie, and Pamela. From everything I could find, the Meyers were a tight-knit family and had so many friends, and they were all very well-liked in their community always ready to lend a helping hand to anyone in need, even opening up their home for people who needed a place to stay. Betsy has always been known for her larger-than-life personality, her bright blue eyes, and her ability to make friends everywhere she went. Hmm. In high school, she excelled once again in making friends and inspiring everyone around her to have fun, no matter what they were doing. An extrovert at heart, if there was a party, Betsy was there, but also... If there was someone who needed a friend in their corner, Betsy was there too. She would throw these awesome sleepovers and everyone who made it to one of her sleepovers would always rant and rave about how much fun it was and how nice and welcoming Betsy was. She would go out of her way to make everybody that she came across feel like they were the most important person in the room. And she worked hard to maintain all of her many friendships. She was super lively and fun and could fairly be described as the life of the party. Hmm. She was a standout softball player in high school where she played the role of pitcher and took part in bringing home two state championships with her team. She also loved music and she loved having a good time. So it made perfect sense when she started her own DJ business as a senior in high school that she named Party Starters, (laughs) which feels like so appropriate for her. Yes, She would DJ at weddings and then at parties for friends like holiday and birthday parties and that sort of thing. And she had an uncanny ability to get even the most shy of guests out on the dance floor and busting a move. Nice. She went to school for broadcasting, and eventually she would go on to have two daughters, Mariah and Leah Day. She loved her daughters and took such great care of them. From my understanding, she didn't marry their father at any point, but she did eventually go on to marry a man named Ron Carter in 1995. Hmm. The two would split after a short time, and in 1997, Betsy would meet a new man. 
While she was working as a cashier at a gas station in O'Fallon, Missouri, a man named Russ Faria walked in. From the very first time he visited the gas station, he was totally smitten with Betsy. Hmm. Her fun personality and her big, bright smile that lit up her entire face. The two would flirt and chat every time he came in, and eventually, Betsy would work up the nerve to ask Russ on a date, and the rest was history. <laughs> That's fun. It's like a sort of a chance meeting, but yeah. also like once they met, they were both like, oh, like I hope I see this other person right. again, right. which is just cute. Yeah, I love cute. stories like that. Betsy and Russ began dating shortly after that, and they would get married in January of 2000. Russ had worked a series of jobs that he did well at, but was not passionate about. But with Betsy's encouragement, he went back to school and got his degree, which led him to landing a great job in IT at Enterprise Holdings, which was a super steady job hmm. that actually allowed him to work from home. Nice. Yeah. I always feel like when I was a kid, my parents both were allowed to work from home mm -hmm. doing separate jobs. Yeah. And there were kids in my class who would be like, isn't that weird? Like your parents are always there. And I remember being like, no, it's amazing. <laughs> I love that my parents are always home. Yeah. I forgot my project at home. Dad can bring it. Yeah. I get, you know, when I was older, I got lunch breaks. I got to like leave the school. Oh, yeah. I would yeah. go home and hang out with my mom because she's yeah. the coolest. <laughs> so like work from home jobs rock. Like yeah. maybe that is like, I need to like make a disclaimer, like pre 2020 implications. Sure. Yeah. But like, even still, even, st I mean, I still think work from home jobs are awesome. Yeah, I do too. So anyway, Betsy and Russ truly did love each other, but they were not immune to hardships in marriage. The two would get in arguments from time to time, and they were actually separated for a while. Hmm. About a year into their separation, they both kind of had a moment where they were like, what are we, what are we doing? Like we 100% love each other. We want to be together. So let's work on things. And so that's what they did. Betsy worked her DJ business part-time while she also worked full-time as an insurance agent at her local State Farm insurance company. Hmm. Once they reunited, they began attending the Morningstar United Methodist Church in nearby Wentzville, where they went to regular services and received marital counseling that really helped them through the more tumultuous aspects of their relationship. Hmm. They would still argue, just like any couple, and there was some tension between Russ and Betsy's oldest daughter, leading her to move out and leave her car behind at Betsy and Russ's home. But things were getting better, and they had taken some solid steps to, like, move forward as a united front. Yeah. Things were going really well, and the two bought a beautiful home in Troy, Missouri. During this time, the younger daughter, who was 17 years old, actually moved in with Betsy's mom so that she could finish high school at the same school that she was at. Oh, wow. So Betsy's yeah. mom lived closer. Oh, sure. And so it just made sense for her yeah. to just stay there for a short time. Yeah. Instead of going, moving to Troy. And having to switch schools yeah. or like make a long, like 40 minute commute every day to right. and from, you know, that kind of thing, right. which made sense. Yeah. Sadly, Betsy would be diagnosed with breast cancer in late 2009 and would undergo chemotherapy as well as a mastectomy and reconstruction surgeries, which were obviously very hard on her. Mm-hmm. But despite being devastated by her diagnosis and by the difficulties of the treatment, as well as with her struggles with depression and suicidal thoughts, Betsy was determined to fight the cancer, and she did her best to keep a sunny outlook on life and a positive attitude. Wow. Which, like, mad props. That would be so hard. Right. So thankfully, in early 2011, it was learned that Betsy was in remission. 
Thrilled by this great news, Betsy and Russ organized a celebration of life cruise where the Farias and a bunch of their closest friends and family members would all get together and go on a cruise that would visit Belize, Honduras, and Cozumel in November. <laughs> but Betsy was struck with a devastating blow in October of that year, just one month before the cruise. Not only had her cancer returned, but it had also spread to her liver and had become completely inoperable. Oh, man. She was given the grim, heartbreaking prognosis of three to five years to live. Wow. So now more than ever, Betsy had been determined to enjoy her life no matter how much time she had left. Yeah. Which, can we just pause and think about that? How much logical sense it would make to just be sad. Yeah. And not do anything. Yeah. And just like wait for the end. Like, I feel like that would be, that would be what I would be more tempted to do. Yeah. It. It kind of goes both ways. It's like so logical to say, now I'm just going to sit in sadness and feel Mm -hmm. totally at a loss. And then it also makes sense to swing to the extreme opposite end where you Mm -hmm. just are reckless with your life. Sure. You're like, well, what is there to lose at this point? I feel like she had a happy medium where she was like very aware Mm -hmm. of like the implications of her illness and her prognosis and everything. But she's like, you know what? This is terrible. But like, because I have such little time left, I'm going to enjoy it yeah. as much as I can. And yeah. I'm going to choose every day, even when I'm tired and feeling gross from the chemo and all of that, I'm going to choose to be joyful. Yeah. And I'm just like proud of her for yeah. that. I love that. I admire her so much. Okay. So when November rolled around, she and her loved ones decided they would still go on the cruise. And Russ, knowing this was her lifelong dream, arranged a very special excursion for her where she got to swim with dolphins, a day that she described as one of the highlights of her entire life. Yeah. And there are photos of it. And she's literally like, her face is like Mm -hmm. glowing. She's so happy. (laughs) It's so pure. Yeah. I love it. So since being diagnosed with cancer the first time, Betsy had pretty much endless support from her family and large group of friends. Since Russ worked from home, he would regularly take her to and from appointments and chemo Mm -hmm. treatments, but friends would also help out with those as well. Everyone making sure that Betsy never had to take a single step of her journey alone. Wow. One of these friends became a regular at her appointments. That was her old coworker, Pamela or Pam Hupp. Pam and Betsy had worked together in the early 2000s at State Farm, and they had lost touch over the years. But as soon as Pam heard that Betsy had received such a terrible diagnosis, their friendship kind of rekindled. And hmm. since Pam was on disability at this time, she had a lot of flexibility in her schedule to take Betsy to and from her appointments. Oh, yeah. And wow. while she wasn't really Betsy's closest friend, she was a very constant like presence mm-hmm. in her life at this time. And like sort of through her cancer journey. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. So as December 2011 rolled in, Betsy and Russ enjoyed a wonderful holiday together, clinging hard to the commitment of living life to the fullest and fighting to enjoy every moment. They had a nice Christmas celebration with their extended family on the 26th. And then on the 27th, Russ's life would be changed forever. So we're going to walk through that day a little bit more specifically than I did in the intro before Mm -hmm. we move on. Okay. So the night before, Betsy had stayed at her mother's house in Lake St. Louis because she had a chemo treatment the following day and her mom's house was like much closer to the office. Mm, Sure. Her longtime friend and childhood babysitter, Bobby Wan, had taken her to the appointment and the two women sat together and caught up while Betsy received her chemo. Russ had originally planned on picking her up, but the plans changed when her friend Pam showed up and offered to drive her home. 
Hmm. Russ finished up his work at home and wondered, hopefully, about a text that Betsy had sent him that day. She told him that she had some good news to tell him. Hmm. She did tell him that her white blood cell count was down and that her doctors were really pushing Betsy to get some extra rest. Like, I guess she'd been a little bit more active hmm. than she like sure. should have been necessarily. Sure. And so just like given her mm-hmm. current state. And so they're really pushing, like, you got to lay down. You yeah. got you to gotta take it easy. She was yeah. like out playing tennis hmm. and just like living life. So they were telling her like, do it, but like slow down a little. Yeah. So Russ then loaded into his 1999 blue Ford Explorer and stopped at a Conoco gas station to put gas in his vehicle. He then went to the U gas station to buy a carton of cigarettes because that gas station had the best prices in town. So that was like his place that he would stop. Mm, Yeah. Once a week, Russ would have dinner with his mom, but he was realizing that he wasn't going to be able to pull it off that week since he'd had so many stops to make before game night. So he called his mom to let her know he was not going to make it. He then stopped at Green's Country Store to pick up dog food and then made one last stop at a quick trip gas station for two Snapple iced teas, and then he headed over to game night. As I said earlier, one of the usual members of game night couldn't make it on that particular evening. Mm -hmm. So they usually played role-playing games together, and without every member, they wouldn't be able to play the game correctly. Sure, yeah. Because people were like assigned characters and roles Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. I think the game was called Role Master, which hmm. I've never heard of it, but yeah, it sounds like one. it's very common. Like it's a pretty well-known okay. game. Kind of like Dungeons and Dragons yeah. and that kind of. Yeah. yeah. So it's similar to that. So they decided that they would just watch some movies, smoke a little weed, yeah. that kind of thing. Just We're just going to chill and hang out. Yeah. Which makes sense. So Russ and two of the other men left the home around 9 p.m. and ventured out into the lightly snowing night. Russ then made a quick stop at Arby's since he realized that he'd forgotten to have dinner. So he ordered himself two sandwiches. He was also a little bit high. So (laughs) (laughs) I am very hungry. (laughs) He gave Betsy a call to let her know that he was on his way home, but she didn't answer. This was definitely out of the norm for her, but Mm. he just assumed that she was following her doctor's orders and getting some rest. He arrived at their home around 9.35 p.m., walked into the home and discovered Betsy slumped on the floor. When he first saw her and took stock of the state of her body, more notably than almost any other wound on her body were the slashes on her wrists. Mm-hmm. Trigger warning. I'm going to mention attempted suicide as well as the method of the suicide attempt. And so I want to give everyone a second to skip ahead if that is a triggering topic for you. So Betsy had previously attempted suicide by slashing her wrists. During a particularly Mm. dark season, she fell into a deep depression and made the attempt, but since then, she had been on medication that had really helped her navigate her depression and was not exhibiting any signs of serious depression or suicidal thinking. So this was completely shocking for Russ. Mm. So as soon as he saw the deep slashes on her wrists that were so deep that you could see all the way down to the bone. Wow. And it was very obvious that she was deceased. That was his first thought. Yeah. Like he, I don't think that he could fully process what he was seeing. He just saw that and thought, oh no, she's, she's done it. Mm -hmm. So she was only 42 years old. Wow. And just, just so young. Yeah. He was so shocked at the sight of his wife covered in blood and slash marks that he truly did believe that she had done this to herself initially. He made a frantic now infamous 911 call and told the operator that he had come home to his wife dead on the floor in an apparent suicide. And this 911 call, by the way, is not hard to find. It Mm. is extremely upsetting 
very mm. gut wrenching. Like I listened to it for this episode and it like I was just like ugly crying. Oh, it's very sad. He's very obviously like completely beside himself. Yeah. But he did his best to give the operator the information needed for police to be sent to the scene so that they could begin looking into what happened. Mm-hmm. From the minute they entered the home, it was very obvious to investigators that this was not a suicide. It was very clearly a homicide. Investigators brought Russ to the sheriff's office where they intended just to ask him some simple questions to help them get some information so that they could have like the most full picture possible in Mm -hmm. the situation. So the natural first step in crimes like this is to look at the person closest to the victims, Mm -hmm. usually the spouse or partner. So it did make sense that they wanted to talk to him specifically. As is common in interrogations, Russ was left in the interview room by himself where he was observed on camera repeating things like, no, 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 Betsy, Mm -hmm. no, Betsy, why? And that kind of thing over and over. Eventually, investigators made their way into the room and began piecing together a timeline of the day with Russ's help. However, from the get-go, investigators were very suspicious of Russ. Hmm. Given the state of Betsy's body, they thought it was extremely strange that he believed that she had killed herself when it was crystal clear that no human could inflict wounds of that degree and that numerous to their own bodies. Hmm. In all, the medical examiner counted 55 wounds on Betsy's body, indicating a very frenzied sort of crime of passion style of attack. Whoever did this to her Mm. seemed to have gone into like a frenzy, stabbing Betsy over and over in her skull, arms, neck, face, etc. It was absolutely gruesome and indicated that this was most likely a personal attack and not random. Wow. They questioned Russ for hours, not mincing their words. Detectives would say things like, something happened when you got home and you snapped, Russ. And the only way we can help you is if you explain to us what you did and why you did it. Before they moved into straight up just saying, we know you killed your wife, so just tell us what happened already. Mm. So one of the officers informed Russ that according to the incoming forensics evidence that had been gathered so far, it was very clear that Betsy had been dead for less than an hour which means that it would have been pretty much impossible for anyone else to have done it. It had to have been Russ. So I would like to ask you to remember that. Oh, okay. It's kind of important that the the guy said that. Okay. Over the course of more than 12 hours, detectives grew in ferocity towards Russ, having their minds made up that he killed his own wife in a fit of rage. They took notes about how he didn't seem to have any evidence of tears when he was crying and that he was super up and down emotionally, which like, duh, Mm. like he would go from being calm to being extremely upset. Right. He's just had the weirdest, most life altering thing happen to him. And he's the one who found her. Like, of course he feels right up and down the place. Yeah. He hasn't slept in a long time either. So eventually Russ agreed to take a polygraph test. When the results came in, detectives informed Russ that he'd failed it miserably and that he showed deception on questions regarding whether or not Russ killed Betsy or if he at least knew who had killed her. So Mm. Russ was incredulous. Throughout this whole thing, he maintained his timeline of events and maintained his innocence Mm -hmm. and that he would never hurt Betsy. He offered to take another polygraph test, and so did the men at game night with Russ, but the police declined. 
Hmm. Police were suspicious of his very up and down behavior in the hours after Betsy's death. And they were very suspicious of the excessive amount of stops that he'd made before calling 911, believing those stops to be a cleverly concocted paper trail that Russ was attempting to establish in order to like set up an alibi. So they didn't, Hmm. they were like, why did you stop at three gas stations? And he's like, well, the gas is cheapest here. The cigarettes are cheapest here. Mm -hmm. And this place was on my way. Like, I just didn't think about it. And like the dog food place, I always go there. Got the best prices. Like, he's just kind of like making normal stops, things that you don't really think about. You're just like, oh crap, I have to stop here and do this now, you know? Yeah. So as the night wore on, the questions and statements coming from investigators became more direct, saying things like, well, one of Betsy's friends said that Betsy had confided in them that she was scared of you and that you had threatened to kill her placing a pillow over her head and saying you just wanted her to know what it felt like to die. Mm. Also, they told him that he must have been so angry about Betsy's decision to move the family into her mother's home in the coming months, a decision that Russ was not aware of until that moment, like when they told him. Oh, So in the investigators' minds, it was just another motive to want to kill her. That and the fact that many of their friends allegedly reported that Russ and Betsy fought quite a bit. So things were not looking great for Russ Mm, at this point. Right. We do have to keep in mind here that Russ had been awake for over 35 hours at this point. And pretty much immediately after discovering his wife of 11 years brutally murdered in the home that they shared together, he was brought in and interrogated and then was subsequently blamed for her murder all over the course of less than one day. Wow. So this was a highly stressful, confusing time for him. Mm Mm-hmm. Back at the crime scene, investigators combed over the scene and found a few things that added to the suspicion that Russ had killed Betsy. In their bedroom closet were a pair of men's slippers that had blood on the tops of them. There was also a bloody smudge on the light switch. There was blood on the handle of a hand towel drawer and a bloody dog's paw print on Betsy's clothing. Hmm. One important thing here is that when Russ got home, he remembered that Cicely the dog was chained up outside which is very odd. Mm -hmm. They also noted that their dog was not friendly to strangers. And so given the paw print on Betsy's body, it's pretty easy to quickly deduce that the dog had been inside for at least part of the attack. Yeah. That she'd stepped into the blood and then maybe put her paw on or stepped on Betsy. Mm -hmm. Whoever chained her up had to have been someone familiar with her. Otherwise, there's no way she would have complied to being chained up, let alone allowing someone into her home without making a huge scene. Yeah. While there was none of Betsy's DNA on Russ's clothes, nor was there any of Russ's DNA on Betsy, police only took this as a sign that he had killed her and cleaned up before calling 911, citing it as suspicious that Russ didn't try to embrace his wife after discovering her body. Russ told investigators like, I know from watching even five minutes of a crime show that you're not supposed to touch a body yeah, because that could confuse the investigation. It could mess things up for you. But instead of tracking with that, it was just another thing that they felt made Russ look very, very guilty. That is so interesting. We've had other episodes where the opposite has been true. Right. Where there's been a lot of argument of like, oh, if only you wouldn't have done this Mm -hmm. or well- they said they did this, but for all we know, they only did that to cover their tracks. Cover their tracks. Yeah. Like it, it it's just, it's, that's like kind of a interesting catch 22 that you're kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't. Right. Well, and I, I understand having to factor that in. 
like to make mm-hmm. a note of that in an investigator's journal or whatever. But like, I feel like deciding, making a decision based off of one factor like that yeah, is very confusing to me. Like that feels like it's against yeah. training. There's a lot of speculation so far yes. and nothing really concrete. And yeah, it just, nothing here has made me go, oh, well, Russ could be guilty. Like so far, I'm just like, there, there has got to be like multiple other people on their radar. And it just seems like there's not, which is frustrating. Mm-hmm. And we've seen that before. Right. So we have with disastrous consequences. Yeah. Upon learning about a recently updated life insurance policy taken out on Betsy, suspicions only escalated. So as Russ was being questioned, they asked him if Betsy had any enemies. He obviously said no. Literally everybody loves her and there's not a soul in the world that would want to hurt her. They asked if she had seen anyone else that day, which she told them yes. She'd seen her mom, her friend Bobby, the physicians at the chemo appointment, and then her friend Pam. Hmm. None of these people were seriously investigated and neither was anybody else. When police had everything they needed, they placed Russ under arrest for the murder of Betsy Faria. A decision crazy. Old, yeah. There's wild. literally no actual evidence so far. That's it's all speculation. They pretty much waited until he lawyered up and they're like, boom, nail in the coffin. And so <laughs> yes. that, I mean that's After his right. One whole day and then some. Mm-hmm. And then finally being like, you know what? I should have a lawyer in on this. Right. Like, so they just saw the it as a gun. That's yeah, so dumb. They absolutely uh, saw it as another sign of guilt. They initially could not hold him because they did not have enough evidence. Right. But on January 4th, 2012, Russ Faria was officially charged for the murder of Betsy Faria. News headlines were fast to label this as a case of marital strife ending in tragic stabbing mm-hmm. and things of that nature, while many of the people closest to Betsy and Russ agreed that there was no way that Russ could have done this. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there were others close to them that were like, oh, he absolutely did it. Mm. So, so it was a, a mess from a the lot beginning. Of conflicting feelings and opinions. And, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Russ had a family member who had previously worked in the law offices of defense attorney Joel Schwartz. And so she was able to connect Russ with Schwartz, who agreed to represent him. Immediately, he noted a few red flags about the initial investigation. He wondered why nobody else was being looked into. There were multiple people who had seen her that day, and Russ wasn't one of them, according to his statements on his whereabouts that day and on Betsy's. Because, I mean, she was at her mom's the night before. But for some baffling reason, investigators hadn't felt the need to seriously look into any of them, which is so strange and has to be against protocol. Yeah. Especially considering that during this time, there were plenty of red flags coming up in at least one other person's behavior, which we will talk about plenty as we go. Mm, Okay. There were also several moments of completely inappropriate conduct on the part of police overseeing the investigation and the interrogation. So I didn't write this down, but when Russ was arrested, they handcuffed him and put him in the car. Mm -hmm. And one of the officers put a gun to the back of his head and said that he was going to paint the windshield with his brains if he didn't cooperate or something like that. Just like completely, completely violating just about every role that you have. Why? Why are... Why are there such obnoxiously bad cops in the world? There's so many bad ones. There's so many and they good seem ones. to flock together too. Like yeah. this whole department is a hot mess. Yeah. I mean, I guess that that does kind of make sense because it always 
not always, but I, I shouldn't speak so candidly, but it seems that it kind of comes from the top down mm. and bad hires get made and they do dumb stuff like that. That just makes you really second guess the competency of some people. And that's true yeah. for people in any job. That's true. But it's glaring when it's a true crime scenario. Yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> so, so it seemed to Schwartz that the police had decided based on limited evidence that Russ was 100% the killer and that instead of proving that with definitive evidence, they had just decided to twist the evidence they did have to make it fit the story they decided was the truth. Jeez. Despite this, Schwartz made contact with other people and gathered plenty of evidence that Russ was telling the truth and that he had not murdered his wife. Hmm. Russ's trial began on November 18th, 2013. The Lincoln County prosecutor, Leah Askey-Cheney, opened up by saying that Russ was motivated by greed, that Russ was determined to access the $150,000 life insurance policy that his wife had, and so he killed her. The fact that she was terminally ill with cancer only served as an extra horribly sad factor in this whole story. She brought in witnesses that spoke on Russ's character, talking about how he wasn't great with money and that it had been a point of struggle in, in their marriage. Witnesses, including Betsy's daughters, said that they did fight quite a bit, one of them even saying, quote, it wasn't the Brady Bunch, end quote. <laughs> With that testimony, they painted Russ as a scary, violent, and controlling man who Betsy was very afraid of. Hmm. This point would be illustrated by more testimony from Betsy's daughters, her sisters, and her friend, Pamela Hupp. Russ recalled the feeling of betrayal as the stories told by these people that he knew and loved were twisted and exaggerated, and they happened years and years prior. It was, for whatever reason, not allowed to be brought up that the family dynamic had completely changed and improved for the better once Betsy and Russ had begun attending the Morningstar Church and had gone through counseling together. Mm. As well as the fact that Betsy's cancer journey had really brought them closer and helped them to, like, prioritize the important things in life and let the small things go. That so was it, not allowed to be talked about. It wasn't allowed to You're going to be, gonna be shocked as I continue here. That's crazy. I feel like the, the relevancy of what happens in recent years should always trump what happens 20 years before, 10 right. years before. Right. So, like, so true. That's so odd and once again, if you want to look at something that happened 20 years ago and cite it as potentially relevant, that's one thing. Right. But to base how you're perceiving somebody now when there's been no evidence of this problem since right. 10 years ago. Well, and even to say. That's irresponsible. Yeah. Th that they I don't blame her daughters for that as a side note. They were very confused by this whole thing. Of course. And they were so heartbroken about what happened to their mom. Of course. So like, I want to be crystal clear that. They're just sharing their experience, but the frustrating thing about it is they're only hearing testimony of experiences that don't seem to be up to date. Right. And so when someone goes to the point of saying, I'm going to go find help for my marriage and get counseling, like, and then you can't talk about that, that's a pretty big problem, I feel like. Mm -hmm. You know, like that's a huge conversation point to say, yeah, we went to counseling for help for our marriage because we mm -hmm. knew we needed it. Right. And we feel much better. Right. Like just that alone. And their I money like, situation yeah. was better too. 
Yeah. Like, it's just crazy. It's just crazy. Mm. So phone records indicated that Russ's phone pinged 10 miles away from his home at 925 and then showed him arriving at his home at 937. He called the police at 940. That's so like a pretty tight timeline. Yeah. yeah. That's a tight timeline. Interestingly, Lincoln County police never searched Russ's phone records to indicate where he had traveled, nor did they check anyone else's travels. Schwartz had to bring in his own specialist to get this evidence. Good grief. It was also determined that Betsy's daughter, who had planned to call her mom that night, had called her multiple times after 7.20 p.m. Betsy had earlier agreed to be available for this phone call, but she never answered when they came. Mm. There would be some interesting things about another person's whereabouts, as told by phone records, but once again, nobody bothered to look into it. And this evidence would turn out to be inadmissible. What? So I'm not going to get into it in this part because I'm kind of building towards it, but there is another person with red flaggy behavior. Sure. That was, even though they testified, not allowed to be brought up as suspicious in this trial. And every time Schwartz would try, he would get objected to. And the judge would agree that we're not talking about this person. We're talking about Russ. Sure. Which does not make any sense because nobody looked into this other person's behavior. It, it, it can make sense from the point of this is this person's trial. We're trying to determine if this person is guilty or innocent, not determine if this other person is guilty or innocent. Right. But. But we're also deciding if he's guilty. Like straight up, they're, they're deciding, did he do this? If there right. is evidence that would suggest that somebody else also had means and motive, then that was not investigated until the defense attorney decided to look into it. Hmm. I don't understand how that's inadmissible, but yeah. we could go on about this. But yeah. all of the stops Russ made, despite there being surveillance video and receipt evidence, was explained away by the prosecution as Russ just making a paper trail. Also, it was noted that Russ was wearing the same clothes in the surveillance videos as he was when police arrived at his home to begin their investigation into Betsy's murder. So he didn't change his clothes and he didn't try to like hide bloody ones or throw them away Mm -hmm. or cover his tracks in any way. Mm -hmm. Same exact clothes. So he would have had to get a lot of work done in like three minutes. (laughs) Yes. 55 stab wounds. Yes. Just vicious stabbing. Yeah. The, and the suggestion that he would have just cleaned up after that he, he didn't embrace her. So Mm -hmm. he just cleaned her up so that he wouldn't leave any trail. That's a lot to do in, like you said, three minutes, even if he arrived a good bit before that ping, like there's, there's a lot They're, they're saying they're insinuating a lot of activity in a, pretty tight window in the most uh, open to that theory mindset. Mm -hmm. Like it's just, yeah, there's so much speculation and assumption that you've been telling me that I'm kind of like, did did no one just like flag? Maybe this was like not the only option. It's really strange to me. Right. As far as the testimony of the last person known to have seen her alive, Pam Hupp, this was confusing as well. 
While Russ had referred to her as a good friend to Betsy and that he had considered her a friend as well, Pam maintained that she really didn't know him very well and that based on the stories that Betsy had told her, she was also afraid of Russ and upset about the way that he degraded and demeaned his wife. Due to injuries that she had sustained over the years, inconsistencies in statements that she had given to police were explained away, and some extremely incriminating evidence was inadmissible, even though it was extremely relevant to the investigation. Mm. Anytime Schwartz would zero in on any of the very inconsistent, very incriminating statements that she made, he would be objected to, and the judge would agree that this was an attempt for him to, quote, impeach the witness, and it was not allowed. There were also moments that there were only presented to the judge who then didn't allow the jury to have access to those moments. Mm. So pretty much all of Pam Hupp's testimony was not seen by the jury at all. They were let out on a recess. Mm -hmm. It was all set in open court. So anybody else that was there watching Uh as well as the gallery, they could all hear it, but not the jury. Just saying. I I must not know how that all works because I feel like a recess is everybody, but maybe I don't understand all. I mean, I don't all understand all. I don't all understand. <laughs> I don't understand how it was allowed to run that way. Yeah. I complete ignorance on that to an extent, but that does not seem like you're giving the jury a full picture. Yeah. That's very And odd. they're the ones making the decision. So yeah. that I do not know how that's allowed. Anyway, I will explain more about that later. The prosecution then leaned into officer testimony regarding the forensic evidence gathered at the scene. According to one officer's testimony, they had performed a blue star test in the home, which is a test used to examine for blood. Mm. Apparently, the blue star test revealed that there was blood all over the house. But darn it, when they took photos of it, the camera malfunctioned and they lost all of the photos they'd taken. So I have no clue how that statement was allowed to be admitted as evidence in court because it could not be proven to be true, but it was a big point that investigators focused on. Hmm. Other lab tests checked for blood in multiple areas of the home, such as the drains in the sinks and in the shower, but there was no blood present. It's also important to note that there were no bloody footprints at the scene and that the bloody slippers found in the closet appeared to have been dipped in blood as opposed to stepping in blood because there was only blood discovered on the top area of the slippers and part of the bottoms and there were no splatters of blood present. So it doesn't appear as though somebody was actually wearing them during the crime. Yeah. Someone took them, put them in the blood in order to incriminate Russ. Mm -hmm. And then they threw them in Russ's bedroom closet. Yeah. That's they like weirdly focused on the slippers (laughs) as like, see, there's blood on his slippers that he hasn't been proved to have worn. Yeah. Okay. There's this is a hot mess. Yeah, seems like it. When the medical examiner testified, given the state of Betsy's body and the extremely high amount of stab wounds that she had suffered, that it would be pretty much or at least pretty difficult to determine an exact time of death. Mm. They were able to deduce that many of the stab wounds were made post-mortem and that given that information and the state of rigor on the body, that it seemed pretty likely that Betsy had died sometime before 7.20 p.m., that is much earlier than within an hour of getting the mm-hmm. call. So that guy, that detective straight up lied to Russ to intimidate him. Yeah. So, so there's that. Wow. The prosecution also used the presence of eight sperm cells in uh, Betsy's body as proof that Russ had assaulted her before killing her as one final act of control. Because that's just the kind of monster that he was. 
Mm. Russ had explained that the two had been intimate on Christmas, two days before Betsy had been killed. As a side note, sperm can remain present in the body for up to three days. And so it's once again, extremely strange that this needed to be, Mm -hmm. or or was almost an indictment in court because you could not prove there was no evidence of sexual assault. Right. There was just the presence of the sperm cells. Yeah. That, that is such a weird demoralizing, dehumanizing thing too. I I know it makes me angry that they even had to do that. You're married to this person and your sperm is inside like, duh. Right. That's just a gross, like, yeah. Yeah. Like why is, I would understand that. Who does that serve? Right. I would understand that getting brought up if like there was other evidence of rape Mm -hmm. or if there was other evidence of like, if there was something that really made like gave that some kind of a context, a specific context, mm-hmm. it makes sense. But just like generally saying at some point you guys had intercourse, like I'm kind of like sometime in the last, in the three days before <laughs> she passed away. Yeah. I'm just kind of like, that's not shocking. This is, especially if things were yeah, going well, right. like, and they were just connecting and they had a great holiday. They just had a fun trip together where he surprised her with making one of her dreams come true. Yeah. Like, it sounded like things were going really well for them. So, yeah. I don't know. So, in all, there was no blood evidence that could definitively prove that Russ had killed Betsy. In the most bizarre closing argument I have seen in a minute, Leah Askey Cheney said that what had really gone down here was that, given the role-playing game nights enjoyed by Russ and his friends, who she basically explained as scary little freaks dressed like hobbits while doing drugs and drinking in the basement, that these guys had just decided that they were bored with their usual game night endeavors, and so they planned out and executed something bigger. She said that Russ, quote, decided that this would be the ultimate role play. Months before, maybe years before, he had the idea, and I think he brought it to his friends. He decided this was the night. He makes all these stops so that he can establish an alibi, end quote. Are you wow. kidding me? Are you joking? She just, was not joking. I'm 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 just a little bit like taken aback because we've we've talked about this before. There there comes a certain point where you uh especially if you're you're like creating a fictional story about somebody where inevitably you have to say okay you are describing the worst human being in history yes we've talked about this yeah (laughs) and i'm just kind of like are we and he did this and he did that like like and you know granted like worst human being in history i there are plenty of front runners for that that don't need to be named um but like i don't know i just i i hear all that and i'm like Years before he's been conniving to do this for mm-hmm. years. You, you, and he like planned this whole thing just for fun. Yeah. Like just because it's like RPG. Like I, I, just I don't understand like how somebody jumps to that kind of a conclusion. It, it seems like silly. It seems like a crazy shot in the dark. And honestly, like, it feels very manipulative to a jury. Oh yeah. Like that's the whole point is to like, just scare them into convicting him. 
Yep. Which I feel like is worth saying. If they're aware that they have not a strong case and they're choosing to then instead manipulate a jury into a conviction, they're actually allowing somebody who really did something to continue to walk the streets. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, and that's really the only place that I can go to is manipulating a jury for personal benefit, which is to win, to win the case, honestly. Mm-hmm. So that's where my, my mind goes in this moment. And well, we're not done yet. I'm, I'm sure. So we're getting there. All that to say, done. that is a crazy closing argument and paints somebody <laughs> from not that far from here. I mean, Missouri is just the next state down and over. Like that's not that far. That just paints somebody in such a terrible light that does not seem all that realistic. I am nodding so hard right now. Yes. And I don't know anybody who plays RPG board games that would like do any of that. Everybody (laughs) who I know that would play like a Dungeons and Dragons kind of game, any, any role playing kind of game tend to be the most thoughtful, Mm -hmm. strategic, friendly, welcoming, fun people, calm, Uh just easy to hang out with. So what she's doing here is preying on like the overall ignorance Mm -hmm. of what those games are. And the types of people that tend to play them and like bond over them. Which is also. She's hoping that they're going to think that these guys are scary. She literally called them hobbits. Gosh. Like as if they're in the basement dressed in cloaks. Like summoning the devil. And doing crazy things. Like it's insane. So let me keep going because that's not all of her closing argument. That was just how she opened it. Yeah. I'll also just say that's also so antiquated. I feel like that that whole thing is like maybe in the 80s. During like like satanic panic. Yeah. And early 90s when people are kind of like, you play Dungeons and Dragons that you're you're so scared. Like. But also, it, you're not like right. It's just there's so it's much. So silly. Sorry, we've really hung on to the front end of these closing arguments. Yeah. But I'm just I'm I'm at a loss, and I need to process that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, so keep going. I'm gonna keep, keep going. going. From there, she basically said that Russ left his phone with his friends to ensure that his phone would not ping and then be able to be traced. He then drove back to his home, forced Betsy to have sex with him, and then he killed her. She explained the lack of blood on Russ's clothes, uh, basically as he got naked before having mm-hmm. sex, with, sex with his wife mm-hmm. and then killed her while they were both still naked, which doesn't make any sense because she was fully clothed when she was found. Yeah. So we would also had to have dressed her. Which would have made him. And then if he took a shower, right. there would be blood evidence in the drains. Right. So, but that was her argument. So he then showered, put the dog outside, cleaned up as much blood as he could, threw the slippers into the closet, and then called 911. Dipped the slippers in blood and then threw them in the closet. Nope. Just just did a quick <laughs> little dip and tossed them. Jeez. Oh. Nuts. It's like almost comical, but it's really sad. We also have to point out that she fully implicated four other men in yeah. this whole thing and got away with it. Wow. She basically, out of nowhere... Despite the fact that these guys had cooperated with the investigation, had wanted to be helpful. Yeah. Despite the police declining that, she painted them as these sick little freaks that wanted to live a fantasy. And she got away with it. Uh, So 
nuts. So the defense closed by discussing the fact that the only thing that the prosecution managed to prove was that there was no evidence that Russ had killed his wife and that he logistically could not have killed her. The lack of evidence was mountains high. No blood on his clothing, under his fingernails, as well as no DNA of Russ's on Betsy's body. The phone pings revealing that he was where he said he was at the time that Betsy was killed and that his momentary confusion when he saw her body did make sense. They brought in some specialists. Mm -hmm. I forgot to say this. They brought in some specialists on um, how operators for 911 are trained to handle somebody who's very upset Mm -hmm. and how he reacted on the phone and in the interrogation is incredibly common. The up and down thing, incredibly common, incredibly common. There's whole protocols for the different ways that people Mm -hmm. call because they're just trying to get the information so they can send help. So this is how they're trained to handle it. So it was said in court that the way that he handled things was not abnormal. So the evidence demonstrated that it was basically impossible for Russ to have committed this heinous crime. Like I said, I'm purposely leaving out details on this trial that we'll get into later, but I feel like I've done enough to demonstrate that not only was the investigation a mess, but so was the trial, and the prosecution did not present enough solid evidence to implicate Russ in this crime beyond a reasonable doubt. Yeah. It was inarguably an unfair trial. Wow. Despite Schwartz and others in attendance being baffled and blown away by the whole charade, a mistrial was not granted at any point. Hmm. With all of the evidence produced, as well as exaggerations and conflicting evidence coming from the prosecution, the jury of seven men and five women deliberated for four and a half hours and determined that Russ Faria was guilty of the first degree murder of his wife. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. What? So what was left to do here? Did the jury put the right person behind bars? No. Members of the jury had written notes saying things like, they're just trying to shift blame off of Russ. And the alibi was too good for it to have been legitimate and things like that. Hmm. He got sentenced to life without parole for having an alibi that was provable and demonstrable. So let me keep going. I'm almost done. Oh, I just need to say, like, they're so (laughs) like untrusting of the basic reality (laughs) of being a person like (laughs) how dare you be somewhere else when your wife is murdered you must have done it you yes i'm like even though you were at a house 25 minutes away yeah you you and you were caught on surveillance camera picking up food yeah at the time you said you picked up food and the time that your receipt says that you picked up yeah. food and let's crazy let's also remember this is 2011 this yeah. is the mid 90s where things are even mid 2000s where things are like kind of hard to track and pay attention to like iPhones existed in 2011 like right. we we actually were able to keep pretty good track of people by this point mhm i just I'm blown away. I obviously haven't seen all of the evidence or watched any of the stuff that you've watched and read any books you've read. But at this point, I'm just kind of like, why, why are people so untrusting in this guy? Mm -hmm. Like, oh man, I'm blown away. Anyway, please continue. Well, and the evidence that is presented must leave you without a reasonable doubt that a person is guilty in order to 
convict them. Right. Like I'm surprised. I'm so surprised. So the very day after the trial, Joel Schwartz began receiving emails from people saying some very interesting things about Pamela Hub, Betsy's friend and the last known person to have seen her alive. Not only that, but Chris Hayes, a reporter with Fox two news, who was the only reporter that watched the whole trial realized that this whole thing was a sham and that there were mountains of evidence that were shared in open court when the jury was on recess that clearly demonstrated that someone else had a dog in this fight, which was Pam Hupp. So he went on to write articles and present this information to viewers in the area. Justice had not been served and Hayes, Schwartz, and many others were not okay that she was walking free while the wrong man served a life sentence. And soon enough, it would be revealed to the world that there was much more to Pamela Hupp than meets the eye. And that's what I have for you today. Oh, my gosh. That. Sorry. (laughs) That is honestly an incredible cliffhanger, and I hate it. Thank you. I know. I apologized. Wow. Okay. I'm not going to make anybody wait for part two. We'll go as quickly as we can into part two. So just throwing that out there. Yeah. I, I'm not that mean and yeah. I do have it done. But if I choose to not edit it right away <laughs> and you have to wait a whole week. <laughs> yeah. Right. I need to learn oh. how to edit. Yeah. All but right. Yeah. Wow. Crazy, crazy, crazy. Well, considering that we are splitting this into two parts, I will, I've already shared a lot of thoughts on this episode, probably more than I usually do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we can go ahead and just wrap this thing up and <laughs> yeah. uh, keep on, keep on rolling. Um, wow. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to uh, the unusual, unsettling, and unsavory story today across all levels. Honestly, this is from a true crime standpoint. Like I'm, I'm the most caught in this story than I have so far. Yeah, and this is bonkers. Um, you haven't even wow. heard the other evidence yet. I, Your I mind's going to be blown. This case is so crazy. Uh, well, I don't know, but I, I know that you I don't tell. know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, man. If you enjoyed today's episode, please make sure that you are subscribed on your favorite listening platform or multiple listening platforms if you really want. Yeah, hey, why not? And leave a glowing five-star review. Um, positive reviews help other people that listen to these kinds of podcasts to find this one. It's very mm-hmm. helpful. Also, make sure that you follow us on social media. We are on Instagram and TikTok at this one is a doozy. And on Facebook, This One's a Doozy podcast. And you can email us at thisoneisadoozy at gmail.com with any suggestions or feedback that you might have. Additionally, you can connect with us over on Patreon. My love, how can they do that and uh, why should they? Yeah, so you can follow the link in our Instagram bio or in our Facebook about section, or you can go to the Patreon app or website and search This One's a Doozy podcast. For $5 a month, you can support what we're doing with our show, as well as receive all episodes ad-free, and you will get access to polls where you can help us vote on episode topics, as well as the monthly charity that we're going to support. And we're about to announce over on Patreon the two options for February. So if you'd like to vote on that, go ahead and get over there. Yeah, it's very fun. All right. Well, with that, we will see you next time for another doozy. Bye.